Hey everyone, this is not a full episode of my podcast, Circle of Willis. Uh, what this is, this is this is bonus material from episode six, where I talked with John Cassiopo. This stuff, uh, this is this is the sort of deep cut stuff, I guess you could say. Some stuff that wound up sort of on the the episode's cutting room floor, but that I can't really bring myself to just leave there. This uh, this bonus material will be a little tough for some people, people who aren't you know social psychologists or psychophysiologists. You know, but if, but if you are one of those people, or if you or if you just want to focus a little bit extra hard, do a little Google searching, there's some really great stuff here. Really great stuff. I mean, it's really just me and John Cassiopo sort of geeking out about some of the details, some of the the work that John did with Richard Petty on the elaboration likelihood model, for example, or John's John's methodological work in uh, in the field of electromyography. John's John's willingness, uh, as he tells it, to forego tenure in order to do the science correctly. This is good stuff, but it's it's challenging stuff. So it's going in the bonus material. Now I do want, even though you know it's it's bonus material, I do want to provide a little background on a couple of things, like uh, like for example that elaboration likelihood model. The uh, the elaboration likelihood model was originally proposed by Rich Petty and John Cassiopo. Way back in, I guess, 1986 or so, it was a it was a theory to explain. I'm probably going to get this wrong, and I, I apologize to Rich Petty and John Cassi- Cassiopo uh, profusely in case that's that's what happens. But what are you what are you going to do? Uh, it was a theory to explain how and why people can be persuaded to change their beliefs and attitudes, and um, and believe it or not, the 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 theory, the elaboration likelihood model, was sort of explosive at the time. And that was partly because the study of attitude change up to that point was sort of a combination of well, it was it was thought of as extremely important on the one hand and full of theoretical and methodological problems on the other. Among those problems, apropos of uh, science's current preoccupation with research replication, was that many of the findings in this area just weren't replicating. So, you know, some psychologists had been finding that making a strong, persuasive argument could change people's beliefs and attitudes, and, uh, and other psychologists couldn't find that at all. So, you know, Petty and, and Cassiopo come along and, and argued that the problem was that under some conditions, a strong, persuasive argument and elaboration, you might say, was, was indeed effective for changing attitudes. So, you know, if, if a person was both genuinely interested in knowing what was true and they were they were sort of emotionally and physically energized then an elaboration argument you know uh, an argument based on evidence and and things logic could be could be really effective but uh and see see if this pings anything for you in our current political environment uh when when people uh, were either not really that interested in engaging with information, or they were just, you know, sort of exhausted. They didn't, they didn't really pay attention to the content of information so much as the emotional package that the information was wrapped in, the the sort of emotional cues and things that that either resonated or not. 
Now, uh, I also mentioned that me and John at some point just start completely geeking out about the early days of a discipline called psychophysiology. And uh, I'm already going, going on here a bit, so I, 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 mean, I want to stop talking. But I, I did want to say that psychophysiology is pretty much just what it sounds like. It's the science of associations between physiology and psychology. And we talk a bit about how psychophysiologists can easily get really, really focused on their specific physiological specialty, you know, studying heart rate or studying these, these brain signals we call event-related potentials. Now, m- most of this is pretty understandable, but at some point in, uh, in meaning to talk about event-related potentials, which are these, these brain-related signals measurable with electrodes placed on the scalp, we use only the acronym, which which, you know, ERP spells <laughs> ERP. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that means that the people who study ERPs <laughs> are called ERPers. And we say ERPers, and if you didn't know what I just told you, you'd be like, what, what in the hell are they talking about? So I figured I better say something about that. So anyway, hopefully that clears some things up. If you do want to dive into this bonus material and uh and anyway you know it's all it's all pretty geeky and i love it and so does john which you know let's let's just get to it okay here it is so where'd you go to graduate school you went straight into graduate school yeah. After, uh, yeah. Yeah, because you you got into law school but you said heck with law school well, the, the issue I, I remember this decision actually like it was yesterday uh, Law school and economics would give me you know, an easy life. And yeah. I, I could have imagined, okay, I'm going to work at things that are not all that fun, but then I'll have great vacations. Yeah, you could buy a swimming pool. Yeah, or... and I was smitten by the idea of letting data, of, of science, of the scientific method of solving puzzles, but yeah. having a more rigorous, actually knowing when you were getting close. Yeah. And I, I just fell in love with that and thought, well, I could you know, make a lot of money um, <laughs> and take vacations or I could, ba- that's why I say I've never had a job. I mean, I could just take a vacation every day and go work. Yeah. And so I went to graduate school instead of law school and uh, I went to Ohio State. Ohio State, right. Because okay. this professor, oh, yeah. was, were you, yeah. this professor who had um, uh, said, well, I know how to find out, had done his graduate work at Ohio State and he said, you need to go to Ohio State. Okay. That's where and, it's happening. And two things uh, happened there. One, Another incoming graduate student and I turned out to be like salt and pepper. Okay. Uh, we just argued continuously, uh, uh-huh. so much so that people thought we hated each other. He became my best friend, but we, we still... Who's that? Rich Fetty. And, uh, <laughs> and it was those arguments that actually led us to move in together so that we didn't have to take breaks. I mean, we would argue <laughs> through the night. You're and, so nuts. And it oh was great God. because... That's awesome. It, it taught, you know, it, I learned more <laughs> from Rich than I did any mentor because I spent a whole lot more time. And he's a very smart man. Yeah. And so, you know, we began working on a, a problem that looks a lot like what we're worried about today. Uh, the field of attitudes people were starting to move oh, away yeah. from because... Uh, the effects weren't reliable. Yeah, Sometimes yeah, yeah. credible sources led to more. Attitudes sometimes less. Is tough. And of yeah. course, Rich and I figured out that no, the effects were reliable, but they weren't main effects. That it depended under what conditions. And so we proposed the first two root theory. And what was that called? Yeah, there was elaboration like elaboration. Model. Yeah. Holy yeah. Crap, and that you know that basically was, was specifying the two processes and the the conditions under which each operated. And then all the variables fell in, and we found gee, the same variable could operate in either capacity. 
Some did, some didn't. A number of arguments could either fuel how much you knew about something or just be used as a cue. Gee, you have a lot of reasons. You must be right. Yeah. And it depended, of course, on the elaboration likelihood. Um, you know, I don't know if you know uh, Will Cunningham, but we, I had a conversation like this, this with him. And we were talking about those moments where you address a problem where it's not working out. And there's this, there's this aesthetic, almost, uh, movement from things being complex to things being elegant. You sort of start right. to figure it out. And right. then when you start to figure it out, the complexity is not daunting. It's, it's sort of beautiful in a way. It's so like go back way- to the jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. Right? You follow certain epistemological rules, certain strategies, <laughs> right, that are above any single jigsaw, just like we follow the, the you know, lay yeah. out what are the parameters of this problem, like we did with multiple determinism, whether you know you don't want Occam's razor, you want Einstein's razor, you know that you don't want to look for generality before you look at specificity. Yeah. So those kinds of things. And then, you, you know, those are the corners and the edges. And then as you do the work, things start to appear. Now, they may or may not be right. And even when they're, quote, right, doesn't mean it's right. It means it's a, it's a useful intellectual structure for thinking about certain phenomena. Right. And you know, the notion that it, that it has to be true to be useful, well, mechanics of uh, Isaac uh, Newton, uh, we know to be now wrong, but you're not going to try to solve a, pr- a traffic uh, accident problem with, with quantum, quantum yeah, physics. No, no, it no. makes no sense. No. The intellectual structure that mechanics represents is incredibly valuable. And since we don't know any single one is ever true anyway, they're really, science is really about giving us intellectual tools to to solve solve problems, problems. the problems that we're facing or the problems that we may face in the future. And so, you know, I don't have any pretense that the elaboration likelihood model is right, only it's a really useful tool for dealing with it. And it demonstrated that what looked to be non-replicable, yeah. sometimes it's a theoretical rather than methodological problem, <laughs> especially when you're dealing with complex phenotypes. Yeah, no, that's right. Oh, that's, that's perfect. Beautifully stated, with. too. Beautifully stated. Were you doing psychophysiology at that time? When I did was. You start, were, I was. So, so who were you working with? You were you, in, in graduate school. You were... Kurt Sandman. Kurt Sandman? Yeah. Okay. And I was doing bio and social. My, my primary focus was social, but I did a lot of bio. Bio was my minor because I was still, you know, some of the early writings, I was combining combining those approaches, but primarily doing them separately. When I uh-huh. went up for tenure, I was told that my record went to two groups, biopsychologists and social psychologists. Really? Because they were that separate. That's, that's the way they used to do it. Right, then, right. I right. Because they, they st- only recently stopped doing that at NSF, or maybe they even still do. They have to, if you have like imaging and psychophysiology or, you know, yeah. and, you know, you have social, you have, you got to go and to get reviewed twice. Right, because no single group was yeah. competent. competent to judge yeah. everything. And, and fortunately, both groups said, yes, this is good. It deserves tenure. And I didn't know about the other half. <laughs> <laughs> tenure where? Uh, this was at the University of Iowa. I, I uh, graduated in 77, so this was 80, 80 was when I came, went up for tenure and got it in, in Iowa. Yeah. Is that where you did the, like the psychophysiology workshops? And It is. It's and, where I started the psychophysiology. So I came down and right, other I, people. Right. We started them there, and then I moved to Ohio State. I moved back to Ohio State on the faculty uh, in 89. So I finished that series uh, at Ohio State. Wow. Uh, Gottman was there when I was at Iowa. It was really fun. And the whole, you know, the, the way I organized it was what are the biometrics? Yeah. 
what are the right. psychometrics? Right. What's right. the inferential context? So yep. that was the structure for every system. And the idea was to bring, because at the time, people studied only one system. You know this. Yeah. There were electrodermers. Oh, yeah. That's right. Erpers. <laughs> and, and clearly, again, just like the other, it was, it's a single body. We need to use these data converging to give us better answers than any single one gave yes. us. When leaving, one of the last things I did at the University of Iowa, this was in 89, uh, I, I picked up my mail right as I was going out the door. And one of the letters from, was from the National Academy of Sciences that said I had won the Trolland Award. Yeah. So I didn't wow. even know anything about it. Holy and, crap. And it was for the work and kind of integrating mind and body, physio and social. Yeah. And because that was really pretty. It was, I mean, it, it, like you said, it, people were thinking of it before that, but you were really, there, there was, it seems like there was a period of time that you were deeply embedded in. Oh, I was. Where that was very exciting. But, that was like the. That was going to change the whole game. But I have to tell you, I, I saw that and I felt embarrassed because I, I felt that I hadn't solved this problem that kept plaguing me. And that is, uh, how can we have stronger inference? I was bothered by the way in which we were drawing our inferences. And oh, so, and brain that, imaging hadn't even happened yet. No, but and that, that, would, oh, that made me say, how do I know the psychological significance of physiological signals? Yeah, how do we know? Yeah. Because I, I, it just continually bothered me that that I was missing something. Yeah. And so as a result of that award, I took the time to sit down and try to solve that problem. And that's actually where that American Psychologist paper came from. Oh, and it's, there's crap. a reason why it's called inferring the psychological significance of physiological signals. And because I felt like I owed the field that, given the honor they had bestowed upon me, I owed the field Something like that. So you, tra- you, you you went out and tried to earn the award. That's really after the for, fact. to myself. I thought, wait, That's hilarious I haven't me. answered the the most important question that I keep being bothered by. No one else was bothered by it, but I was bothered by it. So I went and solved it. For instance, with uh, surface electromyography, that's actually a better measure of very low level fields than needle because, you know, there's something called the size principle in in motor physiology, which means the larger the cell body, the broader the diameter, the bigger the the number of fibrils that are being innervated, the stronger the the tension, right? Well, if I'm putting a needle in the muscle, uh, facial muscle, arm muscle, it doesn't matter. I may not actually penetrate a small motor neuron. I'm, right. I'm just as likely just to be around in the, the neighborhood. large. Yeah. Right. And if I'm around the large one, I'm going to miss all those low-level signals that I can get with a broader sensor, which is what surface EMG actually gives yeah. you. Yeah. So we actually... But you started doing the, all that great work on coding versus electromyography and right. all that stuff. Right. And I actually went to the hardware store and bought weather stripping and a, a leather punch. <laughs> And we just put, we just plastered montages of electrodes on the face and started doing studies to figure out where's the best pl- surface placements to, to actually, because we can, you know, you do facial actions, you yeah, knew that sure, you were, and sure. so you could do that and then, uh, you know, empirically determine what was the best placement and why. And there were, you know, there were physiologic reasons why you might suspect things, but you don't want to span the middle of the muscle because it's a bi-directional movement. Right. With differential amplification, you actually diminish your signal. Wow. And so, you know, the, the things that are assumed kind of intuitively place it in the middle is actually the worst thing you can do. And so we placed it, you know, one in the middle and the other off, but you didn't straddle the middle if you could help it. That's and did you, what we I did can't see. remember, did you do the, the, the chapter on the placement? Yeah. Uh, yeah that was, that yeah. was you. Yeah. I, I literally have copies of that on my lab wall. <laughs> 
I think I do too as well. <laughs> we used to for years and years. I may still have them down there. <laughs> With the little drawings of yeah. the faces, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, works. one of the University it of Iowa artists job. one of the University of Iowa artists did that drawing. Is that right? Yeah. That's classic. That is just it just it's just so impossible to state how influential that is. I mean, it's just really influential. I mean, I, I, I've talked to other people about it. I mean, when I went to University of Arizona, my first guy, I was, Gary, Gary Shorts was there, and he was all into that, you yeah. know, that, that's kind of working out. That's kind of, I mean, he went in a very right. different place. Right. Uh, but uh, but he, was, he was really, you know, died in the wolf for a while there, psychophysiology, yeah. And all those studies that we did were really about sensitivity and specificity. Yes. I mean, if I put two electrodes really far apart, I'm going to have a lot of reliability and a lot of uh, sensitivity, but I'm going to have terrible specificity. And we wanted to get down to which muscle it was. We didn't want something that said, hey, your face moved. That's not very interesting. (laughs) And so this, you know, that's why I say a lot of that was really, you have to have reliability if you're going to have something valid, but it was about validity and about exactly what were we making inferences about? What was actually underlying that? Well, and that's that's been the big bugaboo for me with with the EEG asymmetry stuff I was doing for a long time because... I, I got a handle on the reliability problem, but that, but you know, and that felt like a great triumph for about 30 seconds because then I didn't know what in the hell it, I was measuring. Right. And nobody does right. still. Right. It's, it's still, it's still hanging on. It's still by its fingernails for after 40 years of, of work. Uh, be, but I, I think it's hanging on because it is a reliable measure and you can reliably estimate trait variance across time. And there's all of the stuff that's actually in it. We know about some of the, we, we, we've got a good enough handle on the moderators of measurement so that we can now reproduce it. And that was its own monstrous challenge. But now we still don't know what it means. So part of my journey through all of this was because of questions like that, I got into enumeration. Basically, uh, the theory of number assignment. What do the numbers mean? Now, yeah. psychologists have been in this for a long time with kind of nominal, ordinal, interval, yeah, racial sure, scaling, sure. right? Different scales. But, but, you know, one of the notions is, and I'm, I'm going to defend essentially the, the maintenance of that EEG asymmetry research today, even if we don't know the underlying. Um, you know, one argument was that things like telephone numbers on campuses, can't, you can't do a meaningful analysis of those because they don't, you know, they're nominal. Yeah. Well, let's say that you did do an analysis. I mean, it's math. You can apply them to anything. Okay. So let's say you did, and you found out that the higher the uh, beginning letter of a department is in the alphabet, the bigger the number. (laughs) Then you might surmise something like, is it possible that there was this, at the early stages of this university, there was an, uh, an assignment of phone numbers you know, kind of going through from low to high based on A to Z. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, you know, and that's something you could then go test. Yeah, you could look for sure. So, okay, so that's, that's a case of where this this measurement theory can be has value, yeah. but it, but it shouldn't be used as a crutch for alternatives. So sometimes you release those requirements. But, but you have to be very careful. So what that would mean was I generate, I haven't proven a thing, but I've generated a hypothesis. Yeah. But the absence of adherence to certain principles of numbers, measurement principles, I can't take that as proof, but I can take it as reason to ask a the provable next question. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so it's just, it's how are you using the data? And, and so it's this understanding of what exactly a number assignment does, the rules of number assignment, of what value is it? Now, don't get me wrong. You may well waste time asking that question and finding out, oh, no, it isn't that. Yeah. On the other hand, 
you know, you, those are very kind of creative and new yeah, findings and if because you, no one else would ever have even thought of doing that. And, and also, I mean, if, I mean, this is a, really the this is really the sort of scientist marshmallow test. If you take the long view, right? You know, it's never wasted if you did did it right, right? That's what you were saying earlier. Even and, though it's dis, it can be dis, you know, like ah oh, shit, you know, right. it didn't come out again, right? But uh, you know, the way I thought, or or you know, it's, there's null or something. But if you if you if you paid attention to what you were doing and you did it really well, then it's information. That's right. Yeah. I, I remember and that's never a waste uh, in, from a certain perspective. In one of the summer programs I was teaching, uh, Alice Eisen was a student in it, student quite, I, it wasn't exactly a student teacher association as you can imagine, but, <laughs> but, but you know, we had six or so people and Alice was one of them. And I, I forget exactly the topic that we were talking about. And she said, you know, I view that problem as like a house in in the snow. I see a lot of tracks going in and none are coming out. That means I don't go into the house. And and I thought and I said, you know, I don't have that reaction at all. If I see tracks going in and not coming out, out then I don't go through the front door. <laughs> Doesn't mean you can't explore that. It means don't do it the way everybody else has done it. That's been tried. Yeah, that's do something yeah, else. That's well worn. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. And that's so good. there's you know that's I, I think there's a way to do contribute to that marshmallow the the the, yeah. the future science by just doing things well and not just following what is easy. I mean that's one thing that. I haven't done very well. They said, do it the easy way. You know, I've kind of thought about what's most interesting. But that's also because, you know, the alternative to me was to go make money. Yeah. You know, when I was an assistant yeah. professor and they said, oh, nobody's getting tenure these days, yeah. which was true at that yeah. time. Um, I just said, I don't care because if I'm not going to be poor as a, as a professor, I'm going to be rich as an economist, you know, as a, as a wow. researcher elsewhere. Wow. So why would I care? I, so I have to do this in a way that in, I You felt it. secure. You felt secure in your ability to make it your way in the world. Right. And so, so, so they, you know, among, Rich and I worked together a lot as junior faculty. He was in Missouri, I was in yeah. Iowa. And we were both told, don't, don't work together. You have to establish your independence. Oh, I said, yeah. you're crazy. If you don't, I said, Rich is brilliant. Really fun to work with them. But if you don't think that I'm making a contribution by just talking to me, don't give me tenure. I'm going to continue to do what we find to be fun. Holy crap. This I is such a, this, this, you know, this is the dominant conversation in, among graduate. I mean, it's, it's the perennial conversation among graduate students. But, but right now, with talk of this sort of reproducibility crisis and, you know, uh, pre-registration of, right. of, of tests and all of these kinds of students are very, very nervous you know, because there's still this imperative to publish massive amounts of paper. I mean, I can't, I can't believe the CVs of applicants that we're getting now. They're in the the proliferation of journals, unbelievable, just to bear right. the burden of all these papers that are right. trying to get published. Right. Um, but remember yeah. the tur- tortoise and hare story. If I'm just publishing a lot. But there's nothing programmatic. I'm not going to solve anything. I'm not going to yeah. come up with it. And if I'm doing it and I'm, I'm not being honest with that, I'm, I, nobody's going to be able to find what I'm looking at, right? Yeah. I, that's why, I actually, of the, of the indices, I actually like the H index because to get an H index, other people have to be able have to, to be build on what you've also right, done. Reading you, it's not yeah. just that you're having an influence. It's that you're having an influence because <laughs> people can see what it is yep. that you said was there. Yep. And so I, I see that as a relatively good measure of whether somebody's being cited not because they're wrong or we can't find it but because a lot of people find that's a really productive area or question to go address yeah.